0: Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of the iOS Lead Essentials Podcast. I'm Mike. And I'm Kayo. And in this episode, we'll reply to some questions about dealing with conflict in the workplace as an iOS developer.
1: For example, conflicts with your boss that wants you to code faster or use some hybrid tool like Flutter or React Native. Conflicts with other developers in the team. It's inevitable. Yes. And conflict is a taboo for software developers. Because no one likes conflict. Right. (laughs) So it's seen as a bad thing. But conflict can also be positive. Because it can lead to progress. Constructive conflict. Exactly. However, to have constructive conflict, the parties need to share the same goals. Or the same values. Right. Because if you're going towards the same goal... You may have conflicts, how to get there. But you're still trying to achieve the same goal. And that's how functional teams behave. Functional teams can deal with conflicts Wow! Well. So they make decisions and quickly solve problems at hand. Conflict is not a problem. You have a discussion, you solve it, you move on. Yes. That's it. So everyone can contribute with ideas. No one is afraid to speak their mind and to contribute. That's what you want in a team. There's no problem having disagreements when you trust that we both want the best for each other. I'm disagreeing with you because I think you're doing something that's going to be harmful to you, to the team, to everyone. So, I'm going to propose different solutions because we have the same goal. Yes. And if you trust me, you trust that I have the best intention in mind, you will take it not as criticism, but as constructive criticism, as you said.
0: Yeah, so that's the... The aligned incentives you mentioned before, like when you believe the same thing, when you have a shared goal, then, you know, it's fine because you, you know that the other person wants what's best for you and wants what's best for the team. And everyone's opinion is heard and valued.
1: There is no politics involved. No,
0: no, no hidden agendas, no, no, nothing.
1: No controversial matters. Yes. Doesn't mean everyone agrees with every new idea. No, they will discuss about it. And if it's good for the cause, they might do it. Yes. Or not. It's all about respectfully addressing conflict. Right. Different opinions. And the opposite of that? You have dysfunctional teams that can make decisions. They have analysis paralysis. They don't get agreements. And the problems tend to escalate. Yeah. That's the problem. You need to trust your peers because it's what's gonna lead to progress, to achieving the goal.
0: They're lacking a very significant keyword you mentioned before when they have conflicts, and that's respectfully having them, you know. They they don't respectfully disagree most of the time. They just disagree. There is no respect there, there is no I respect your opinion type of thing. So, a lot of the times, people take personally the disagreements, like personal
1: attacks. Yes. Even if it's not. Even if yeah. it's not an attack, you may take it because if you don't trust the people in your team, they have the best interest for you, for the team, then yes. you might feel attacked Yes, when you receive any kind of criticism. So, let's go over some questions we received about dealing with conflicts as an iOS developer because it will happen. So, be ready. <laughs> so, you don't need to get ready. First question I joined a new team as an iOS developer and found the code base was super messy. For example, many singletons with potential threading issues. So, I wanted to make things better. Good. And I made loads of improvements on my time off. Mm. Noble. Nice. It was great practice. And I was really happy with the result. But the developers rejected my PR. (laughs) Conflict. (laughs) I tried to explain the issues in the code base. But the discussion got very heated. Like they didn't want to hear it. How can I make things better if the team is unwilling to accept it? Okay, so in the previous podcast we said make things better. Right. Now, this developer tried to make things better. And got rejection. Right. How can you get rejected when you make things better? Well, in this case, it looks like the team got offended by the changes. They were not expecting it.
0: Exactly. I mean, just imagine you're the newcomer, you're a (laughs) single entity, and then you come to a team and you say, well, basically, you're doing everything wrong. It's Doing my way. Yes. (laughs) I mean, it might be insulting. I don't know. I'm not saying it is insulting, but. It can be perceived as insulting. And
1: now you have everyone against you. So mm-hmm. that's not good. No, because if you want to make things better, you need a team to be on your side. If you create this antagonistic relationship with them, you're not going to make things better. You're making things worse. Yes. So you need to be more diplomatic. Yes. You no. Know, exercise empathy. Understand that fixing someone else's code... can hurt egos that's it you know who is this new guy coming here and changing my code (laughs) like
0: I mean I I think it's very hard to have like another outcome you know like I think that's gonna happen the vast majority of the time and it's again it's a human issue you know so if you want to make it better, you need mm-hmm. to understand, you know, how, like how to deal with people and see it as a as a long-term process, not just you know, I'm just going to submit a pull request, I'm going to remove a bunch of singletons and that's it. Like <laughs> no, like you need to address the issue in your head first, like why were the singletons there in the first place? Maybe people don't understand, you know, like what to use instead of a singleton there. So, the question then is, why don't they understand
1: that, if that's the case? Mm -hmm. And that's why we say that developing software is about people. It's not as much about software as it's about people. It's about your peers, it's about the business folks, it's about the customers, it's about people. Yes. You're building software for people, with people. So, you need to get the people things right as well. It's not just about the code. The social skills. Exactly. So, I know you had the best intention, but your changes came as a surprise. They were not expecting it at all. They felt attacked. Exactly. Or at least it, it seems like that's what happened. I don't know how you presented those changes, but if you got rejected and you got into heated discussions, that's not good. That's not good, because it's not going to lead to better things. So to make things better, it's not just about changing the code. No. Most of the time, it's about changing the culture. Bringing knowledge to the team. Training. Things that come with time. And of course, as we said in the beginning of the podcast, functional teams can take this kind of feedback or proposes changes to their code. Because they know everyone has a shared goal and has the best for the team in mind. Yes. But you just joined, you need to build relationship first.
0: This seems like the classic case where someone spent a couple years, maybe three years, (laughs) developing all these good architecture skills, the testing skills, and neglected to develop the psychological
1: skills required. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, sound like me. Like ten years ago, everyone, doing exactly like, the same thing yep, and no, getting rejection.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think everyone is going through such a phase. And again, like it's fine. You know, we just need to learn how to deal with these things.
1: You know, it's gonna happen. And maybe you are the person that is in the team, maybe you are the lead and you see someone in your team doing that. And you yes. can help them. You can yes. help them realize that. Parry them and say, I think the team didn't get what you did as a positive yes. contribution so you know let's build some relationship first
0: I think this is key what you're saying because if the team doesn't welcome you basically then everything you're doing is futile right so this this is key to understand like you need to be <laughs> exactly. accepted right otherwise it doesn't matter the, the level of your skill doesn't matter you know programmatically I mean and technically, it doesn't matter, right? So it's not, oh, I choose to be a very good developer, you know, technically, but I'm not a people person or something like that, you know? I mean, you you need to have both if you want to to uh, belong in a functional team or you're looking to create a team on your own, right?
1: If you want impact. Yes. Positive impact. Yes. Because you can say the opposite as well and say, I'm a people's person, I'm not very good with code. Right. It's not good as well. Yes. Right? If you want to be a software developer, you need both. Yes. Right? Yes. If you want to be a professional working with people, you need people's skill, social skills. So it's hard, but you can do it. Yep. So don't get attached to code too much. Don't forget people's feelings, you know, egos. Politics, maybe you are in a dysfunctional team. Yeah. And you need to exercise some politics in the beginning. But if you do it, you will gain more influence and you're going to be able to change culture and help them improve. Yes. Help them become better, become more functional, more open to change. And that's how you actually have an impact. So instead of changing code, maybe you should start presenting talks about the topics you believe you will improve the code base. Yeah. For example, he mentioned singletones. Accessing singletones directly and all the threading issues that can come with that. Why don't you prepare a talk about dependency injection? For example, as a solution or as a better way than accessing the singletones directly. Why? So instead of changing someone else's code, you teach them how to build better code. Yes. Look at the difference. They will change the code. They will change their process. And that's how you contribute. That's the best contribution. Because the more people know stuff, the more they can improve the results. The results for everyone, not just for you, for the team, for the customers, for the business. So you can multiply the impact you have in the team. If you make two other developers in your team better, you multiply the impact you have in yes. the team.
0: Yes. And 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 that goes for the business as well, right? Like perhaps you leave, and and society overall, you know, like this is how it's handled. You plant a seed, and then it seed grows, right? That's it. If you leave the company, then the rest can uh, uh, continue. And if they leave the company, they go to new companies and they apply these new skills there. But one point I, I, I had about what you said is demonstrating instead of just correcting someone right like demonstrating what is happening with solution a rather than go and say no solution a is wrong let's do solution b right yeah i think this is key again because what kind of value do you get out of just correcting someone without guaranteeing that they have understood what was the issue in the first place Right. That's it. But presentations, for example, is an excellent way of giving examples, right? And making the comparison transparent between solution A and solution B,
1: right? And also be open that your peers might not agree with you and they might be right. Yes. So be open minded as well to their criticism. If you present a talk and someone raises their hand and they say, no, I disagree with you. Have yes. a productive conversation with them, because you might learn that there are different ways that they are as good or even better than yours. Very important. That's how you're going to learn. You can then even present this talk in a conference at some point and start building your reputation, yes, with other developers in the industry. So win-win for everyone. Because as you said, otherwise, even if you fix something now, but you don't teach people they will break it again tomorrow, because they didn't understand what you were solving in the first place. That's it. <laughs> and another thing you can do is to ask permission before changing someone else's code. So you are a beginner in the team. You could say that you want to get more familiar with the code base, and you're going to be working on your spare time, on your time off, to understand better the code base. And you can also propose to add more unit tests, or do some refactorings. And create a pull request with your findings. And they can review. If they don't like it, just reject it. That's it. Yes. I'm just doing it because I want to learn the domain. You want to learn the code base design. And you find the best way for you to do it. Is to write tests. Is to improve things. And if they like the change, they can keep it or they can discard it. Yeah. Give them a way out. Give them the way out up front. You don't have to accept it. And be fine with that, that they might not accept it. Yes. and move on, because you did what you wanted, you did your practice, you learn more about the code base, you learn more about the team skills, you learn more, you know more. So that's it. Tell them up front and give them a way out. They'll be much more open, at least in my experience, they'll be more open to accept.
0: Yeah. And be a role model.
1: Help the team improve.
0: And with time, you can eliminate the egos, the politics.
1: Yes, be a good leader. That's the solution. Take the lead. Next question. I recently went through an iOS interview, and I was asked to develop a small test project. I submitted a solid solution, emphasizing on design principles and abstractions. I overdelivered, as you tell us to do. However, the feedback was that the app was overdesigned and ultimately, I was rejected. So overdelivering is not always good, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> when we talk about overdelivering, we don't mean designing a complex, super complex or abstract app. That's not overdelivering. Yes. Overdelivering is about exceeding their expectations. In a positive way. It's about the expectations of the other person. In this case, the interviewer. So to be able to over-deliver, you need to understand what this person expects, what they want.
0: That's that's it. You yeah, know, start from there. Like ma- make sure you understand that, right? Like what are they looking for?
1: If they are looking for a simple app and you deliver a super over designed app. That's not over-delivering because you didn't meet their base expectations. Yes. I like to compare this with... Imagine that someone orders a salad and the chef decides, you know what? I'm going to over-deliver <laughs> and I'm going to add some chicken. or steak there. And, you know, for some people, that's over delivered. That's like amazing. Yeah. Chicken salad. Fantastic. But what if this client is vegetarian? Yeah, they probably won't appreciate. So, over-delivering is about the other's expectation. Yes. If they expect there won't be chicken in their salad, there shouldn't be chicken in the salad. The same thing, if they expect a simple app in the interview, they're not expecting to see a hundred files and a bunch of abstractions. You know, even if you think that this is a better solution, that's not what they were expecting. That's not what was asked mm-hmm. yes. in the test and part of the test is to know that you can follow instructions as well
0: yes v- very very important skill and again this is like a, a people kind of skill it's not a technical skill like just understand the the conversation like y- you being able to listen basically what the other person is asking for and is telling you either in verbally or in a written form it doesn't matter, right? So again like if you're wearing your programming glasses and everything is code to you then you're you're going to miss a bunch of things that other people tell you uh you need to train yourself to understand you know like how the other person uh feel and um and this is empathy basically and what what are they asking for
1: especially you know, like you're just new to this environment. Yes. You're new, like you don't have a relationship yet. So it's very hard to over-deliver in those settings. Yes. It can work against you. Yes. Because if their minimum expectation isn't satisfied, anything else you do on top of that won't be over-delivering because the minimum was not met.
0: Yes. Exactly.
1: I mean imagine
0: imagine if the interviewer let's say you 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 provide a, an over complex type of solution and the interviewer cannot understand what you've done there right like how do you think they're going to feel
1: <laughs> no comments no yeah. readme file nothing yeah. no instructions i mean you're i bet you're going to feel pretty smart
0: submitting it because you're going to say oh look at all these abstractions and you know like all these components and stuff like that and But the other person, you know, if they don't understand what you're doing, that's going to
1: probably, I would say, work against you, you know? Yes, it will. That's why, you know, pay attention to what they want, what they need, what they asked in the test project. And deliver that, what they asked. You know, we recommend you focus on creating simple solutions. Doesn't mean bad solutions with no abstractions, with singletones, yeah. because that's not simple. Right? Yeah. Some things are easy, but they are not simple. That's not what we're saying. Focus on simple solutions. Avoid over designing things. Make it simple to understand.
0: And I think if you do so, you're going to have your chance in the next steps of the interview, or perhaps when you get the job to exhibit and your skills and deliver, you know, fantastic solutions as you're probably capable of doing, you know. But just you know, gradually, steadily. Yes. Like, it starts with two entities, two parties that are unknown, you know, to each other. Like so, so you need to establish there, like some sort of a of a comfort zone, basically.
1: Unless they ask you to deliver a super complex solution, yes, for whatever reason. So, simple solutions, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't introduce abstractions in your test projects. For example, if you have good abstractions, it can help you deliver code faster, adapt to change faster, test your code more easily, and so on. So, there are positive sides of abstractions, but over-abstraction, it's not going to be good. It's not going to look good on you. They probably won't get the job. And we also understand that some companies or interviewers just... They just don't care about clean architecture. They don't care about modularity. They don't care about testability. You know, there are interviews that if you write tests, you're not going to get the job. Yeah. Because they are against writing tests. I've seen it. They don't want tests. It happens. And if you want to work in a team that has clean architecture, modularity, testability in mind, that's your filter. It works in your favor not to pass that interview. Right? You shouldn't be aiming to pass every interview. You should pass yes. the right interviews. So maybe you did a good job. It's just not a good match. That's what I'm trying to say. Remember that not every company or not every team care about the same thing as you do. Yes. And if you want to grow in your career, look for teams that share the same values. So you need to decide. What do you want? Do you want to work in small, simple apps where the company is always rushing you to deliver things faster and faster and faster with no regard to quality? Then you shouldn't care about design testability in your tests. That's how you're going to filter and find the companies that meet your criteria. Now, if you want to work on bigger, more ambitious projects. With high standards. With people that care about good design. Testing, automation. And technical excellence. Then show those skills. In the test project. But that doesn't mean you need to over engineer. Because over engineering. Is not excellent. Yeah, It's not part of technical excellence. You know, Simple clean design. Doesn't need to be over engineered. And if you ask me. I recommend you find. Good teams with good standards. They're not rushing and delivering low-quality solutions. But it's up to you to decide. Next question. I'm often assigned to review pull requests with dozens of file changes. How can anyone be expected to understand how <laughs> changes in one go? Yes, probably you can't, right? There is no easy way to reveal long pull requests. Imagine. Yeah. 10,000 lines of code. Spread across twenty files, yeah. how can you review that? You can't.
0: No.
1: you're gonna just have a quick look and say, "Yeah, let's hope for the best. Are the Ship tests it. passing? <laughs> Ship it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so mistakes will probably pass through. some design decisions that are not good for the long term may pass through as well. That's the problem, you know, but there are some exceptions. Sometimes you have a long pull request because you renamed a folder. And there's like a bunch of files, like renames or, you know, some refactoring to just rename some classes. I wouldn't count that because that's an actual refactoring. Refactoring is not about making your code do something else. It's about changing the code to still do the same thing. So if it's just a refactoring, renaming things, or moving things around, maybe it's okay to be big because you don't need to be looking for bugs. Right. Right. The tests should be checking for bugs. Because remember, refactoring can only be called refactoring if you have a suite of tests you trust. Otherwise, you're just counting on luck. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, some refactorings may have a bunch of files, but a refactoring should not change the behavior of the system. Yeah. That might be okay. Otherwise, committing too many changes is going to be problematic.
0: And again, like consider why does this happen in the first place, right? And clearly, the pull request is not the problem, is the lack of understanding and training, probably. Again, in the first place... Like, why were so many commits bundled in a merge request with all these file changes, you know? So, clearly you understand that you should not be doing this. (laughs) But, yeah, some other people in the team, they they don't understand why.
1: Yeah, like, why shouldn't you do this, right? That's the question, why? They're not doing it because they're malicious. Yeah. Just because that's probably how they learned how to build software. Yes. In big, massive changes in one go.
0: Exactly. I'm I'm confident that, that this, like everyone, you know, that's how you start. That's how you, like, you learn about Git and you don't know, you know, how to do micro commits and merge
1: small chunks of code. And you can have a 10 year, 20 years career. Exactly, and still work like that. You still yes. work without with no Git, no tests. You know, you can have a profitable career without a clear process for yes. doing things and working in a team of people. If you are working, especially if you're working as a solo developer, most of the times. Yes. So the problem is lack of training, and that your peers don't understand that this is yielding negative returns. Yes. Right. So. They think it's okay, so they're going to keep doing it. Why should I yeah. change something if I don't see a problem in it? So if they don't understand the benefits of small changes, of a disciplined process, they're not going to do it. <laughs> if they don't understand the dangers of breaking changes in massive blobs of code, that's what they're going to do. That yeah. that's simple as that. So at some point, you, as you said, you probably also didn't know about the benefits of taking small steps. And making small changes at a time. But now you do. Why? Because someone taught you. Because it's very hard to come up with those processes on your own. (laughs) Right? Yes. So someone taught you. Now it's time for you to pass the knowledge forward. So help your peers understand the benefits. Just like someone helped you at some point. Open their eyes to this new reality. You know, if you're working with someone that doesn't know how to use Git. And they have these massive commits And massive merge conflicts. Help them learn how to use Git. Yes. Pair with them. You know, they might not come proactively and ask you how to do it. They might feel afraid of asking and being labeled like imposters. You know, like, we all feel like imposters sometimes. So not everyone has that proactivity of asking for help. If you see someone struggling, you help them. And for me, when I see a huge merge request, I say, oh, this person is struggling. I better just help them.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes.
1: I've seen developers writing in pull requests, like massive pull requests. They would write something like, I'm out. I won't reveal this massive pull request. And that's it. I, my job is done.
0: I mean, what else can you do? <laughs> you know, like, it's it's impossible to review most most of the time, you know, like these huge chunks of
1: changes. So what can you do? And every day passes, more code is merged, and that pull request gets harder and harder to be merged.
0: Yes. Yes. You
1: know, that, that's the danger. It's going to slow down the whole process. It's going <laughs> to slow down the delivery of the product. So you need to help them realize that. Realize that there are better processes, and also realize that there is a cost to learn those processes, to have the discipline, to follow the steps to change how you build software because it's very hard to tell a senior developer with 20 years experience that they need to change how they develop software. And that's very hard. It's it's yeah. Like
0: these habits are extremely hard to break. Now imagine if that's for one person. Imagine if you have a team of people with um with such habits, it's it's impossible almost to to change, you know?
1: Yeah. But it's not impossible. It is possible. And if you like the team, if you want things to improve, take the lead and help them realize. Yes. Yes. Maybe have some talks, run a quick Git crash course in your team. You know, help them realize the issues, the solutions. Be a role model, be a leader. Help them.
0: Help them improve.
1: Otherwise, what is the alternative? You're going to fire them? No. No, you need to help them.
0: Yes. And ultimately, like this sort of topic, it's gonna make their lives so much easier when they do it correctly. You know, like if they if they don't create these huge pull requests and they work in small batches, they'll be more productive. Absolutely, it's gonna be like freedom. They're gonna it, it, it it feels like freedom, watching your your code getting merged instantly. Where you know that the tests are passing and the whole system is, is good and you don't have any doubts in the back of your head, you know, like this, this is it's really cool. It's a very nice, refreshing feeling. <laughs>
1: and with a good process, you might reach a point where there's been such a long time we haven't seen any issues with code being merged that you can even eliminate code reviews. You yes. rely more on pairing, you know, on other processes. Yes. And that's it. Via a role model and help the team. Make sure everyone understands the process, understand why you have pull requests, understand the cost of huge pull requests, understand the process to release software in small batches and be more productive. You know, that's the important thing. Training. And also, evaluate if the process is even beneficial to your team. If it's yielding negative returns, Maybe you should find a better way, a better process than pull requests and code review. Maybe pair more with people. Yes. Invest more in unit testing. You have an automated pipeline to guarantee the quality. So if needed, talk to your manager and get appropriate training. If you cannot provide that, if you cannot help them, find another way to get them the training they need. Because it's very, very hard to get developers to do something when it's not clear why they have to do it. Not just developers, anyone. Yeah, Which makes sense, right? Why should I do something if I don't think it's beneficial at all? Absolutely. So help them understand the benefits or find a better process. Next question. What do you think of hybrid development with tools like React Native and Flutter? Or Flutter, I don't know. <laughs> I understand that we need to get shareable skills, but it is scary to dive deeper in iOS if native development will die. Will it? Right. (laughs) Okay. I read tons of stories when companies force the team to switch on Flutter or React Native, and it is sad. How can I convince my boss not to switch? Okay, first thing, native development Will not die. And yes, there are some companies that will force the team to switch. But they probably have a good reason for that. A good reason for them in their head. Yes. Doesn't mean you agree with it. But someone told them something or they researched and they found out <laughs> that whatever goal they have, like reducing costs, will be achieved with this solution. Right. So your boss has a reason why they would want a hybrid solution probably reducing cost or something similar. So, reducing costs can be a good reason if the business is struggling and you have a bunch of shareholders telling you that you need to reduce development costs. And if that happens, they will push the team to do it. That's just a fact. So, do you understand why your boss is asking you to switch to hybrid development? For example, is it to reduce costs? Okay, let's say it is. Do you believe they are right? Do you believe it will reduce costs? Or do you believe they are wrong? Do you believe it will not reduce costs? Because you know something they don't. Right. So, if that's the case, can you elaborate why you believe a hybrid solution won't cut costs? Do some research. If that's your goal, you need to provide evidence, you need to provide alternative solutions to the problem, But if you can't provide a better solution to their problems, you're probably wrong. You were wrong in this context. Because they want to solve problem A, and you're not proposing a better solution to that problem. Which could be reducing costs. Right. Now, if you can elaborate why. For example, if you believe that many iOS devs in the team might leave if they switch into hybrid development. And that the team will lose a lot of talent and a lot of domain knowledge that will go out with those people. Now, this is a huge cost for the business. It may take years to rebuild that. So this is might be a reason you can present them why this could be not the solution they're looking for. Yeah. But you need to find out why they want the switch, and you need to realize if they're right or wrong, or if you have a better solution to them, because they have a problem they need a solution. And if you believe you have a better solution, propose it, right? Otherwise, they will do whatever they believe is right for the survival of the business, unfortunately.
0: And the domain knowledge that you mentioned, this is an asset, you know, like in the balance sheet of the development team. The domain knowledge is, is a very big asset, right? You know, it's because people actually come to the office and they know you know they know the product they know the domain right so they can they can translate these ideas about the domain into code that is going to be translated into the executable and ultimately the app in customers phones yeah i mean these these are you know like these these are not ideas that are easy to communicate
1: and some companies just don't care
0: exactly That's they why. see people as numbers <laughs> Exactly. they
1: don't see kyle mike and jenny they see 65k 50k 100k yeah. and yeah you know
0: <laughs> or they don't think about like the costs i mean in, in this context costs can also go about like you know not just how much a developer is going to cost this company a, a year let's say but what is the actual cost with the risk that hybrid development brings on the table? You know, and that's, in my opinion, that's extremely important.
1: I find it very hard to find or build strong hybrid teams of people that know how to do it properly. Yes, It is very hard. Yes. So that's another problem. Building that team, rebuilding that team is going to be super expensive. It's going to take a long time and maybe it won't be done. At all. Also, depending on this third party open source project, but there are a lot of successful hybrid apps out there. You cannot neglect that as well. Yeah. That it works for some companies. There are teams that can do it and do it well. It can be done. Yes. But when you are in this situation where the business is imposing some technology on you, You're probably in a position where you are hired to do things they tell you to do. Right. When maybe you should find positions where you are paid, right? You are hired to tell them what to do, which is (laughs) much more valuable. Yes. And rare. Yes. Right? So instead of being told, hey, you're going to switch to React Native, It would be much better if you were in a position where the business would come to you and ask, hey, we need to reduce costs. What do you think of React Native? Now you can do your research and come back to them with what you found and realize that maybe React Native will help them. Or maybe not. But they are asking you, the specialist, to make this decision. Yes. But if they are not asking you, You didn't build your reputation enough in that company. You didn't build enough relationships to get the position where people come to you to ask, which technology do you think we should use to solve problem A, B, and C? Right. And it should be working towards reaching those positions, those levels. And understand that even when you are at that level, you need to understand the business needs and find solutions to their needs, not to what you want. Exactly. (laughs) Yep. But... In my opinion, my experience, React Native does not solve the cost problem. It doesn't. Most of the time, the problem we have in teams that are costing too much, it's bad processes, no automation, lack of skills. Which training, for me, in my experience, is the solution. Training, make them more productive. That's it. But you need to reach that position so you have more influence on decisions. It's a much better position to be in. You want to be the person that comes to ask these kind of questions. Not the person that comes to tell you what to do. That's it. Next question. When I review a pull request and I recommend improvements, I often hear I will be changing that in another pull request. Or this needs to be refactored Anyway, so we're going to do it later. But they never do it. Right. How should I handle this? Well, if they say they will be changing in you another know, pull request and they follow through, no problem, right? That's fine. Otherwise, it just looks like they're just trying to avoid to do the work. Postpone it until you forget about it. So how can you handle the situation? We already replied to this question iOS Dev Mentoring number 11, where we shared the FBI framework that I learned from Simon Sinek for dealing effectively with conflict. So, I recommend you watch iOS Dev Mentoring number 11. It is free on YouTube. Just search iOS Dev Mentoring 11. That's it. Next question. Some team members refuse to follow the code base conventions we set in the iOS code base. I feel bad having to fix their code all the time. How can I fix this? Well, you need to find out why they're not following it. Yeah. That's the first thing. Maybe it's bad. <laughs> M- yeah, maybe the, co- the conventions are not good. Exactly. <laughs> maybe they're not good. They're just blindly following the conventions, or they are actually beneficial. Because in my experience, when people don't follow something, sometimes it's just because it's not beneficial, and they see that it's just a silly rule, a silly convention. People are not going to follow it.
0: They don't want to get into conflict, you know, like an altercation.
1: So, realize why they don't agree with it. Yeah, You can have a retro session after a sprint, and ask, why are we not following code conventions? Should we change the code conventions? Maybe you should have another code convention where the people follow.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Because if a process is bad, you shouldn't follow it just because you have to. Because it's the protocol. Because it's a rule.
0: You don't need to be the sheriff, you know, the code convention sheriff going around and changing people's code. <laughs> like, yeah, probably have a discussion and say, okay, guys, like, what's going on here? You know, like... Don't you like that? Like, I, I'm doing these changes because there is a convention, there's like a, a sort of a protocol that we need to follow, and we're not following it. So, why are we not following it? Like, maybe you know
1: something that I don't, you know? Yeah. Be open. Yeah. And after you agree in a convention, you can automate checks yeah. to enforce the conventions are followed. You know, you can even automatically fix code or you can have linting to help you and help your team make sure they follow the convention. Yeah. So that's it. Understand why they're not following it and be open to change the convention if it's not helpful. And finally, automate the checks to help everyone follow the convention. Next question. Hey guys, I started using the acronym SUT, which means system under test and had a pushback within my team. For me, it adds clarity and simplicity to the test. Mm. Because it's easier to understand what's the object under test. Although because the team doesn't understand it, there is often objection against it. All right. My advice here is just go with what works for the team.
0: Yeah. It's a case of picking your battles.
1: Exactly. I like SUT as a convention. A lot of people follow this convention, which makes it good. But I would save the argument for more important things.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) You know, I wouldn't fight for the SUT acronym. I would probably save my energy to more important things, like adding a continuous integration, an automated continuous delivery pipeline. Absolutely.
0: The important thing is the testing to be done, you know, like, is the testing done? Awesome. You can call it s-u-t, you can call it o-u-t, like object under test, or subject. You can call it the name of the component, you know, provider, controller, I don't know. Like.
1: Yeah, the idea is not to fight about everything you prefer. Like, yes. I don't fight about formatting rules. I don't fight about conventions, about naming conventions. Because you know what? You want to call this thing an interactor. You want to call it a use case. You want to call it a service. I don't mind. Yeah. As long as the team share the knowledge, I'm fine with it. I'm not going to fight. If you want the brackets in a new line, fine. Let's do it. No problem. No problem. As long as everyone is doing it and it's the convention, let's do it. Because then it saves you energy. To discuss more important things. Things that matter more. Pick your battles, as you said. Exactly. That's all for this episode. If you want to learn more, visit us at academy.essentialdeveloper.com Let us know your thoughts, your questions, your feedback. We'll see you again next time. Bye, y'all. See ya.